I made the transition from Tufkin in the year between fifth and sixth grade. For those of you who do not know what Tufkins are, they were a pair of pants sold by Sears Roebuck back in the 70s and early 80s that came with a reinforced knee for active children. Did any of you guys ever wear Tufkins? Love Tufkins. I thought Tufkins were like armor plating for boys. And so I thought Tufkins were great. But what happened is between the summer of fifth and sixth grade, preparing to be a middle school student down the road here in Preston, I became more aware of peer pressure and what was cool and what was not cool. And it kind of came to my attention through my peer group over the summer that Tufkins were not cool for middle school students. And so sadly, I realized I needed to leave my armor-plated jeans behind and move into like actual, I don't know, big boy jeans. So I started wearing big boy jeans that did not have armor plating, um, but I didn't really know what the cool brands were, nor did I really care, but I learned in middle school that a lot of students did care what the brand of jeans were. And just through some weird happenstance, it turned out in sixth grade that I had a very cool pair of jeans because the rear pocket had stitching that looked like the Van Halen band logo, the slanty V with the slanty F. I, you know, knew one or two of Van Halen's songs, and I was, you know, I like to listen to their music on the radio as much as the next guy, but I was far from a groovie, definitely didn't own any of their albums, and had no idea that I was wearing their band logo on my rear end. But that was really cool in sixth grade. And so it just so happened that in sixth grade, there was a moment where I was like trendy and, and with it. But as I continued to grow in my awareness of peer pressure, I realized that uh, off-brand jeans were not going to make it at the Norwich Free Academy. That would probably subject me to negative peer attention and, and peer pressure that I didn't want to put myself through. So I bought my first pair of Levi's at the Levi's Strauss store in the Norwich Town Mall right across from the arcade if you remember that particular dark corner of the Norwich Town Mall. I have no idea what's there now, but that's where the Levi's store was, and so of course I had to have button flies because only nerds wore jeans with zippers. And so I got my first pair of Levi's jeans, and again, I was cool for about six months until we decided that what we really thought was cool was pegging our pants. And so then, of course, it led to a whole nother wardrobe transition to try and stay on top of I guess not being made fun of, I guess not being different. And it's kind of funny to look back now to kind of trace, you know, your elementary through middle school through high school career by the kinds of pants that you wore, because there's a part of you now that's like, who actually cares? Uh, and I guess as an adult, we have the ability to really feel that way and not really care. But as a, as a child, it was really hard to not be conforming to whatever the cool version of clothing was at the time. And so. From Tufkins to Van Halen jeans to Levi's to pegging my pants, that's the journey of, you know, my youth regarding pants and trying to stay on top of not being made fun of, 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 of not trying to be totally subject to peer pressure, but yet looking back on it now, I can really see how I was. Because honestly, I like Tufkins. There's nothing wrong with armor-plated jeans for boys. I still think they're amazing, and if I could find them, maybe I would, maybe I would still be wearing them. This morning, I want to take uh, kind of part three of just a very brief journey through the early chapters of Daniel from the lens of how to be a good kid, and, and maybe we'll even pick up something at how to be a better adult as well. Because Daniel's been on quite a journey, and now the text turns in chapter three to his friends, and they 
the context that we're going to see of our passage this morning, which is Daniel chapter 3, is arguably one of the greatest examples of peer pressure that we see in Scripture. These are still young men, and we're going to see from the text that they are subjected to kind of a life-and-death situation involving what society is expecting them to do and to conform to and what their response is. And we're going to try and pick up a couple of biblical principles from uh, the message that Daniel has for us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I do encourage you to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. I have a few of the key verses will be on the PowerPoint presentation this morning, but I don't have the whole chapter on the screen. Sometimes I feel it's more distracting um, than not. I think it's best if you have your Bibles or your app, just open up to Daniel 3, and you can follow along as I read, as only certain key verses will be on the text this morning. So beginning in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high, and nine feet wide. I haven't taken the time to go into great detail about this statue, but if you remember from two weeks ago, the last time we talked about Daniel, thank you, Tim, for preaching last week as I was coming off a week of camp. Really appreciate that. The last time we were in Daniel, two weeks ago, the king had a dream. He wouldn't tell anybody the dream, and yet the wise guys were supposed to interpret it. Daniel was blessed by a vision from the Lord, understood what the dream what the dream was, shared it with the king, and it was a vision of a massive statue. Head of gold, torso of silver, thighs of bronze, feet of iron and clay. I'm going to be talking more about that vision and, and its importance for us as Christians today next week. But it really has nothing to do with this idea of how to be a good kid and how to be a better adult. And so I kind of want to, I'm purposely skipping over that dream and its significance, and I want to talk about it next week. Uh, but this is where this statue is showing up in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. The king actually had a dream with a massive statue, and he was told via the interpretation that he was the head of gold. And so the king has since decided to make this dream uh, conform to his reality. So King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, matching the one that you can read about in chapter 2. Ninety feet high and nine feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Why three verses basically saying the same thing over again? Couldn't you just said that in one verse? Yeah, you probably could have. My best guess for the repetition that's found in all the lists of the wise people and the government administrators is that Daniel is trying to make it very clear that this is the who's who of who's anybody is there for this very, very, very big deal. It's like Super Bowl Sunday with the World Series and maybe a PGA championship thrown in for good luck. Like anybody who's involved in sports and the American women's soccer team, anyone who's involved in sports is at the big thing, and if you're anybody, you need to be there because something important is going to happen. I think that's why there's this repetition in the first few verses of chapter 3. Here's what you're all supposed to do, beginning in verse 4. A herald loudly proclaimed people of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, 
horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music you are to fall down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. <laughs> We're all going to be doing the thing. If you do the thing, good news is you get to see the sunrise tomorrow. If you don't do the thing, we're going to roast you like a marshmallow. So, when you hear all the music, with all the people, here's what you're going to do. You're going to worship this statue, because the king was viewing this statue as a divine revelation from God, which it was, but in his foolishness, he was giving it an interpretation that Daniel did not give him. The goal of this statue, the vision, had nothing to do with worshiping an image of the king. And, and we'll talk more about that next week. It's an amazing vision, and it concerns how the world is actually going to end. And it, there's a lot of wisdom that we can still glean from this vision that was given thousands of years ago. It has nothing to do with worshiping an image of a man that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. The king is acting like a fool. He's acting like a fool. But because he's the king, he gets to. These are the consequences that are going to face the heroes of our story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. One of the things that is a recurring theme uh, when we have a chance as young people to go away to camp is we're removed from... Our, our, our family setting, we're removed from our family routine. More importantly, we're removed from our peer routine and our normal interactions with our peer group. We don't bring cell phones or electronic devices to camp, and even if you do, you only really get a signal if you stand by the flagpole and hold your head just right. Like, you're basically removed from your peer group. And it's at camp, having been to camp now, I think, 14 years in a row. I've spent months of my life at camp. Uh, with young people, and so I've seen certain patterns emerge, and one of the patterns that emerges at camp that is so beautiful and so powerful is young people have this moment, and they're like, why do I actually care what certain people think? Because here I am with a different set of people, and we're getting along great, and our, our, our attention and our focus and our fellowship and our time is centered on the things of God. And I actually, as much as I like my friends at home, there are certain things I'm actually glad that I'm not having to deal with this week while I'm at camp. Because as young people, when we're away at camp, we begin to recognize that our culture, our peer group, our peer pressure is trying to conform us to go a certain way. And when we remove ourselves from that, and we have the perspective of God's word and the preaching and the teaching and the worship and the fellowship and the times that we have at camp, we're like, oh my God. I can't believe that I wanted to do a certain thing that my peer group wanted to do. I now see that it was just peer pressure. Culture was going one way, and my faith is kind of taking me another, and it feels really good. Like, when I go back home, I, I hear students say this all the time. I want to spend less time on social media. I want to spend less time on gaming. And it's not so much that the students don't like playing the game. It's that there's a constant chatter going on now via headsets and technology that was simply not there when many of us were young. That gaming is more than just playing a game now. It's very much a social interaction. 
and they realize, wow, a lot of those conversations, a lot of that stuff is just actual baloney, and I want nothing to do with it. They have this moment of clarity while at camp. Because that's what makes this passage so difficult, is literally everybody is doing the thing. And the thing is wrong. The thing is foolish. The thing is actually evil, as the text is going to say. As we continue, chapter, verse 8 of chapter 3 in Daniel. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your God or worship the gold statue you have set up. And so we come back from camp and we implement these decisions that we make. Sometimes we're making decisions of faith for salvation. Sometimes we're making decisions of faith for baptism. Sometimes we're making decisions of faith towards our social media presence. Sometimes we've made decisions of faith regarding our gaming, like I already talked about. Sometimes we've made decisions of faith about how we're going to interact with our siblings. But decisions of faith have been made. And we always encourage the students to go home and let their moms and dads know about those decisions of faith. And their lives change for the better. And we see kids coming back to camp, going on with their life, and they want to go back to camp next year. And as they grow into adulthood now, that I've been doing this, like I said, for 14 years, almost 15, I think, we have adults now that I know that look back on their time at camp and say that the Lord really used that powerfully in my life. They became a better follower of Jesus, having had that time of intense fellowship and worship and teaching and being removed from their peer group at camp. They became more obedient sons and daughters. They became more obedient church members. Their lives moved forward for matters of the kingdom because they had this time away. Let me tell you what happens to these students as they mature and grow in their faith. They start to stand out a little bit. They, they come back to school in the fall, or they come back into their home environment, and their peer group, or their parents, or their teachers begin to notice, you're a better student this fall. Good job. You know, you grew up over the summer. That's what they're going to say. And only half the time are they talking about your physical stature, right? You've made some changes. You're a looky-in-the-eye kind of kid now. And, and, and the adults in our lives begin to see the decisions of faith that were made over the summer, many of them at experiences like camp and so on. And our students, well, you begin to stand out a little bit as a leader, as a, a kid that, uh, that teachers are now saying, maybe you can help so-and-so, they're really struggling right now. Maybe some peer mentoring or peer tutoring. Your parents begin to give you a little bit more freedom because they trust you a little bit more, because you grew up a little bit. Again, they say things like, man, you've really grown. Young people, I'm telling you right now, only half the time are they talking about your stature. It's an adult way of saying, good job. You're growing up. 
We've been waiting to see this happen, and it's happening day for you. You begin to stand out a little bit as you make decisions of faith, as you begin to mature in your faith, and own your faith for yourself. Again, camp, for many of us, is a critical part of this. Let's continue in this text, because then I want to tell you the next thing that happens, okay? Because I think it's important for, for us to just be very honest about this. So I'm picking up the text in verse 13. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been called out because they're different now, right? They, they've made a decision that's different from all of their peers. And so they're, they're, they're standing out in a certain way, and it's been brought to the king's attention. Watch what happens. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, and here we go again, what is it with the horn, flute, and zither? When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, every time the text is repeated, just think peer pressure. Because that's what peer pressure feels like. That's what it feels like. It's like unrelenting. And if I have to read horn, flute, zither, Zither and Lear one more time, right? But that's the impact of peer pressure on our lives. Now, if you're ready, I'm giving you a chance. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And listen to this. And who is the God? Who can rescue you from my power? Here's what I want to say. Listen, you fools. The same one that gave you the vision. The same one that gave you the interpretation. The same one that revealed that vision through the power of the Holy Spirit to Daniel that we confirmed after prayer and fasting. Chucklehead. That God. Okay. This is why I have to wear tuckskins because people then want to kick me when I say things like that. But that's kind of how I feel after reading that. Have you forgotten where the vision came from, you fool? It's a vision about the end time. It's a vision about the kingdom that will never end. It's about a vision of the God's people representing a kingdom that will conquer every other aspect of history. And you've used it to build a big Lego set out in the middle of the desert. You chucklehead. Right? This guy's acting like a fool. He, he, he's, 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 he's not processing reality correctly. And the only three people who have any sense to themselves at all are the ones who are standing during the orchestra set. Right? But now these are the guys that are in trouble. I want to share something with you young people because I've described what happens as you mature in your faith. And, 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 and I've seen many adults nodding their head as I did it because that's what they experienced as they began to own their faith. You know, preach, Pastor, right? When we say, good job, my how you've grown, only half the time are we referring to your stature. We're also commenting on your maturity, and we're proud of you, right? I've seen a lot of adults groovy with that. We're getting that because we're proud of you guys as young men and women. So proud. You begin to step out. You begin to stand up. And culture begins to see it. Here's the next thing that happens. Sometimes when we are known as obedient, that our obedience will lead to a rejection. That culture is only going to put up with that for so long. That there's going to come a point where the very peer group or society or your group of people that you interact with normally at school or in the community,
community at some point you're kind of happy in the community you're growing up but then but then your obedience strikes them as something that's not conforming to culture and it can lead to negative consequences it can lead to some pretty nasty peer pressure like why don't you conform in certain ways why don't you think in certain ways why aren't you behaving in certain ways and we're happy that you're growing up and we're happy that you're maturing and we're happy that you're beginning to own your faith but and and you're beginning to step out and stand out in a way that made us very proud initially but young man or young woman you've kind of taken it too far and sometimes our obedience can lead us to a cultural beatdown the world will come after men and women of faith uh, let me give you some examples of just topics of just areas where as a young man or a young woman you will be making decisions of faith and the culture has taken a radically different position than what God's word says one example how to behave in worship the, the Bible says that we are to work as unto the Lord you will be entering a workforce that says look out for number one only do what's expected because if you do more now you're making your co-workers look like lazy bums don't stand out don't put in the extra effort don't be exceptional or only be exceptional in ways that don't make the rest of us look bad there's going to be some tension there every adult in the room has faced it every adult in the room has been that uh, another area just general where the world and you as a young man or young woman of faith is going to be you're going to be standing up on the plain of dura while everyone is bowing down your perspective about children how we treat children specifically the unborn as a young man or a young woman of faith you are standing on the plane of dura everybody else is bowing down and they think you are ridiculous they think you are actually wrong they think it's because you have a low view of women instead of a high view of children and a high view of women they don't understand it our position on abortion makes no sense we're standing alone on the plane of dura as a young man and a young woman you're going to be standing alone on the plane of dura and society is going to ask you to take a knee and you're going to have to make a decision what the bible teaches about marriage absolutely at odds with what the culture says we do not try before we buy that's all i need to say marriage is holy marriage is a picture of our salvation experience with jesus his bride wears white ephesians 5 is mostly a picture of the purity of the church and then secondarily a picture of what your wife is supposed to look like on your wedding day completely at odds completely at odds with what the culture says we stand alone on the plane of dura when it comes to marriage uh language <laughs> the words that actually come out of our mouth the things that we say and don't say we are standing alone on the plane of dura do not let any polar or unseemly word depart from your mouth but only that which is encouraging for those that are around you they may have a better understanding of the grace of god in your life tried that one in the workplace when i flew for the airline they thought i was amish because i never swore and they thought only amish like it's okay to be amish and standing alone for some reason but it's not okay to be a protestant and standing alone on the plane of Dura. no i'm not amish i just actually don't swear well that's weird were you dropped on your head Yes, actually, I was, but that had nothing to do with why I don't swear. <laughs> Language, children, marriage, and work. And we could go on, right? 
as men and women of faith, as young men and women of faith, who are standing alone on the plain of Dura, and everybody else is bowing down to the culture and society. And it's very easy to tell the fool that's up in your grill that he's a fool. Right? And even Tuckins will protect you from that conversation, and I'm not recommending it. Instead, let's take our example from what these guys did when they had that opportunity. The king was a fool, and it led to parties, targeting of the only righteous men. Of the hundreds or thousands that were standing there, only three were righteous, and only three are now being targeted. That's how the world actually works. That's real. Okay? Obedience can sometimes lead to a beatdown. The point of this sermon is not, Pastor Josh said, don't be obedient, because then you don't get beat down. No, Pastor Josh is actually going to point out from the scripture how to endure the beat down well. Because that's actually what it means to be a young man or a young woman of faith. As you begin to stand out, sometimes your obedience will lead to a beat down because of the fools and the foolishness of our culture. Chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Amen, right? So the question is, when is it time to make that kind of a statement? And let me get very specific. Let me ask the question. When, because we're talking now about obvious obedience. If you're the only one standing on the plain of Dura, and as far as the eye can see, you're the only one standing on the plain of Dura, you better have a pretty good reason for being disobedient in the eyes of the culture and obedient to God. Because there are times to not stand out. There are times to not die on that hill. And, and just because we are a man and woman of faith doesn't mean we have to roll into the cafeteria every school day and stand on top of the table and preach Jesus until we get kicked out of the school. Like, that's just silly, right? That's just crazy. There are times to be winsome and to make friends and to be wise, but then there are times when it is time to be the only one standing. And these men were in that situation. How do we know when it's time to be that kid? How do we know when it's time to be that adult in the workplace, in the marriage, with our words, in the culture? Obvious obedience is the godly response to oppressive evil. These guys were not given any latitude whatsoever at all. Kneel and worship, obviously evil, or die. And they chose the risk of death. So in the face of oppressive evil, really, really life or death, very, very serious consequence type stuff, we choose obvious obedience. There is a time to be the only one standing. There is a time to be willing to face very serious consequences when our culture is saying one thing about language and children and marriage and work, and our faith says another. And it's not that we're chuckleheads at school. It's not that we don't have any friends. It's not that we only ever read the Bible and never play a video game. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when it's time for obvious obedience is when there is a, we need a response to oppressive evil. Then it is time to not be cheap. Then it is time to not be coy. It is time to make a very clear stand. 
Please note what the young men did when they made their stand. I call it the if-then statement of faith, right? They, they were very clear about what they were not going to do and gave the king all the power to do whatever it was he needed to do. An if-then statement of faith. Let me point it out real quick so that we don't miss it. It's located in verse 17. If the God we serve exists, and what's funny about that is I already said, we actually don't need to talk to you about this king because fuck ahead, he's the one that gave you the vision. You wouldn't be building 90-foot statues of gold if God hadn't given you the dream. So we don't have to talk to you about this. You know why we're doing what we're doing. You already know all the things. You're just being stubborn. We don't actually have to say anything. All we're going to say is an if-then statement. If our God exists, then he is capable of preserving us from your wrath. And even if he doesn't, we're going to do the right thing. An if-then statement of faith. Very cool model for how to resist oppressive evil when it is time for obvious obedience. You may choose to say anything you want about your loved ones and the holy relationships in your family. But I will not use vulgar language towards my family. I will not use vulgar language at all. But if you would like to use vulgar language, you get to. But you will not find me talking that way about the people that the Lord has put into my life. You may make any decision you want to about your own children and what's going on with your body. But as for me and my body and my children, they are going to be treated a certain way in accordance with God's word. If my God exists, even if I get myself into a pickle regarding kids, he is able to preserve his testimony and his honor and his glory. And so we're not going to treat children a certain way. I don't care what you do in your marriage. That's your marriage, and it's your vow. But in my marriage and in my vow, if the Lord brought us together, the Lord says in his word, he's not going to bring us apart. And so that's where my commitment is. If then statements of faith. Very powerful when obvious obedience is called for. Continuing on in the text, in verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shabbat, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes, were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, bound, into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, Didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, Look, I see four men not tied, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of a god. Final big idea for this morning, taken from the text in chapter 3, verse 25 of Daniel. The obviously obedient are many things, but they are never alone. 
obviously obedient are many things, but they are never alone. There are times where God will miraculously deliver us after making a decision of faith. And there are times in his sovereignty that we will not be preserved. And it could mean demotion at work. It could mean being fired. It could mean the ending of a relationship. There's a lot of consequences that could happen from being the kind of person that makes obvious obedience a part of their life. And there are times that the Lord allows us to go through some deep and difficult seasons as we suffer the consequences for our faith. It, you can't read First and Second Peter and come away with any other conclusion than Peter's trying to equip the saints for a season of persecution. And sometimes things don't always go well for people of faith. But people of faith, those of us who are obviously obedient, are many things, but we are never alone. Ever. Worst case scenario for these young men is they would have been consumed in the flames as physically what should have happened to them. They would have been in the presence of the God that they just made a stand for. They're not alone. In this case, they were preserved. And it was the king who was alarmed. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen to what he called them. You servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire when a satrap, prefect, governor, and the king's advisors gathered around. They saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected. There was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. If I lay the king's command and risk their lives rather than serve or worship any god other than their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that any one of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <laughs> what is it with this guy and his ridiculous punishment? Will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. Here's my question for King Nebuchadnezzar. He just saved these three boys from the fire. Do you really think he needs, they need your law? You just did your work. And they don't even smell like a toasted marshmallow. So now you're going to make a law. Like they actually need your protection. And we're going to rip people's houses down. You, whatever. This guy's a joker. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. You think? Captain Obvious? Oh my goodness. Captain, a little bit too late with a good law. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Understand from this text, young men and women, and, and adults too, that these guys were, uh, they began to stand out. The Lord blessed them. They were given appointments because they were young men of faith. They helped the king interpret his dream and understand what the dream was. And so they were appointed above their peer group because they were standing out. That very appointment, because of their decision of faith, their obvious obedience led to a beatdown. Because again, in the lives of the world, we're happy about young men and women of faith to a point when it starts to get weird. And we already talked about that. And, and, and they made a, a decision of faith in the face of certain death. And now they get promoted again. And so the very envy that caused them to be called out by some other evil people has actually led to their further advancement in their professional development. So I'm wrapping up our time together this morning. 
He's done a pretty good job of going through Daniel chapter 3, laying it with a lens of what I would consider modern-day peer pressure is the best way to understand what they were facing at that time. And as we wrap up our time this morning, really the the application question is, and and again, the big idea from the text is that for those of us who are obviously obedient, we're a lot of things, but we're never alone. Here's the question for us this morning. What area of my life is God calling me to be obviously obedient? What is the sphere of my life where everybody is bowing down to the culture and the Lord is calling me to serve? He's calling me to be obviously obedient. I've already mentioned a number of different areas where I've seen young men and women make decisions of faith after being away at camp regarding their time with the peer group and their time with gaming activities and their own choice of the word. As adults, it's easy for us to make our own applications. Our thoughts immediately take us to our workplace or different family situations. But where would the Lord have us make a decision of obvious obedience? And what would that look like? What would that if-then statement look like for each one of us this morning? I understand that I'm being pressured to be a certain way in this sphere of my life, but if the God I serve is real, then this is the way I know I need to behave, regardless of who's taking a knee around me. And if he preserves me after making this obvious decision of obedience, then praise the Lord. But even if he doesn't, I am not going to go in that direction. What would that area of our life be? The promise from the text this morning is that we will end up being a lot of things. The obviously obedient will end up being a lot of different things, but we'll never be alone. The challenge for those of us this morning who are not men and women of faith, who have never given our lives to Jesus, who have never had a conversation with God that goes like this, Heavenly Father, I have always bowed to the culture. I've always bowed to peer pressure. I've always bowed to because I just want to get along. I I don't want to stand out, but it's left me feeling alone. Because in my experience with the culture, it gives anxiety too much, and I can't keep up with it. One day I'm wearing cool jeans that have a Van Halen logo, and the next day I'm in shorts for the same pair of jeans. And I'm tired of chasing. I'm tired of chasing peer pressure and trying to fit in. And so, Lord, you know where I want to fit in? I want to fit in in your kingdom. And so I acknowledge all the things in my life that are sinful and displeasing to you, and I turn from them now, and I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want him to be my peer group. I I don't ever want to be alone from him. I always want to be in his presence. Regardless of where the culture goes, can I just be in your presence in faith by placing my faith in your son? So can we answer that question? Yes. And if that's you this morning, then that's your obvious obedience. Turn from our sin, turn to Jesus, and become a Christian. That would be our obviously obedient decision. For those of us who made that decision a long time ago, I pray that the Lord would give you wisdom and insight as we have an opportunity to take our our lesson and our example from three teenage boys who would not take a knee. Would you join me in prayer as we wrap up our time together this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, we love the fact that your word is so clear that not everything is going to be perfect all the time, but we can always experience the joy.
joy of your presence. We can always experience fellowship with the saints. We can always experience times of prayer that lead us to encouragement. And sometimes we are delivered from difficult situations, and sometimes we have to walk right through the middle of them. But Father, thank you that your promise to your people is that we are always in your presence. We ask these things in